This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Northern New Hampshire, USA, is one of the most scenic places you will ever travel by day. But by night, as you wind through the forests of tall evergreens that cover the mountains and gulches, it can be a lonely, if not foreboding, country. But Betty and Barney Hill were upbeat, relaxed, and had no thoughts of the terror that awaited them as they drove south on New Hampshire State Route 3 at 10.30 p.m. that night, September 19, 1961. The night was clear and the sky was starlit, a perfect New England summer night, with a bright moon adding a sense of wonder to the night sky. It was the final leg of their journey from a brief vacation in Niagara Falls and Montreal to their home and jobs on the New Hampshire coast at Portsmouth. Just south of Lancaster, New Hampshire, Betty, window-gazing as Barney concentrated on the road, noticed what she at first thought was a falling star to the south and west, until it suddenly paused and began to inch its way upward, stopping next to the moon. As she watched it, it grew larger and began to move erratically. The light was overhead enough that the trees didn't block the view, so she continued to watch it. Knowing it was a good time to let their dog Delcy have a walk, she asked Barney to pull over at the next rest area, which he soon did at a picnic area just south of Twin Mountain. And while Barney walked to Delcy, she grabbed her binoculars from the back seat and focused in on the object, which was now traveling across the moon, giving her a good chance to focus in on it. It was an odd-shaped craft showing flashing multicolored lights. It moved erratically, not acting like an airplane or a helicopter. And it obviously wasn't a falling star. By the time she handed the binoculars back to Barney, the object had changed course and shortly thereafter had changed direction, rapidly descending and now heading toward them. Betty, having eliminated all known explanations due to the object's pattern of movement, was thinking that this might be a flying saucer. Now, looking through his binoculars, Barney at first observed what he reasoned was a commercial airliner traveling toward Vermont on its way to Montreal. However, he soon changed his mind because without looking as if it had turned, the craft rapidly descended and was coming in his direction. This observation caused Barney to realize that this object that was a plane was not a plane, and was challenging his sense of what was possible and what was not. He was doing his best now to rationalize while they both returned to the car, a little more quickly than they otherwise might have done and continued on toward Franconia Notch, a narrow, mountainous stretch of the road. They continued driving on the isolated road, moving very slowly through Franconia Notch in order to observe the object as it came even closer, and both got the feeling that they were now being observed by this craft. An uncomfortable feeling began to grow from the pit of their stomachs. They stopped again at a roadside pull-off to observe again, seeing that the craft was still descending and coming ever closer. Harry watched it now as it ascended, then descended vertically, then hung motionless in the sky. He was a born skeptic and did not believe in flying saucers. He just needed to figure out what it was. At one point, the object passed above a restaurant and signal tower on top of Cannon Mountain and came out near the Old Man of the Mountain. Betty noticed its size. It was huge, at least one and a half times the length of the granite cliff profile, which was 40 feet long, and that the craft seemed to be rotating. Approximately one mile south of Indian Head, the object rapidly descended toward their vehicle, causing Barney to stop in the middle of the highway. The huge, silent craft hovered approximately 80 to 100 feet above the Hills 1957 Chevrolet Bel Air and filled the entire field of view in the windshield. It looked to Barney like a huge pancake, a flattened saucer. This was a game no more. Something very strange was going on, 
and they were being targeted. He reached into the glove compartment and pulled out his pistol, putting it in his pocket. Then he opened his door and stepped away from the vehicle, moving closer to the object. Realizing his binoculars were still hanging around his neck, he brought them up to eye level to get a better look. The craft was 60 to 80 feet long, hovering silently. There was a line of windows allowing him to see the interior, which was lit by blue-white lights. The windows were around the outer rim of the disk, through which he could see moving figures, between 8 and 11 by his count, looking back at him. They were dressed in black, shiny, one-piece suits. They wore black caps, and they moved with precision, not quite in a human way as he described it. As he watched them, he saw two fin-like sections tipped with red lights opening out and away from the craft, which seemed in a way aggressive to him. Something was about to happen. Instinct was now telling him to get back to the car. He tore the binoculars away from his eyes and raced back toward the car. In a breathless, trembling voice, he told Betty that they needed to get the hell out of there and now. He climbed into the driver's seat and gunned it, pulling out onto the road and continuing south. The craft kept pace with them directly overhead. They began to hear rhythmic buzzing tones and felt the car being rocked, together signaling that something was bouncing off their trunk. They drove on like this for 35 more miles until they heard a second series of buzzing sounds. Then, suddenly, a bright red orb was sitting on the road directly in front of them. What happened next was hazy, as if in a dream sequence. But the next thing they knew, they were still on the road, seeking an open restaurant as they headed east and south, but not finding any, and they had now reached Concord in Route 4, which would lead them east to Portsmouth and home. They were both quiet, as if wrapped up in their own thoughts. There was no craft anywhere in sight, and they didn't even look at their watches until they approached Portsmouth and saw the first rays of the sun coming up. And this was what surprised them. They had expected to make Portsmouth by 3 a.m., according to their timetable. Not sunrise at 6 a.m. Somehow, somewhere, they had lost three hours. And when those three hours finally came into focus, the world of ufology and unexplained phenomena would never be quite the same again. Welcome everyone to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and the story which is called by most ufology experts as the Barney and Betty Hill abduction, the first well-documented alien abduction, and the one by which all the rest are measured. We'll get to the story in a moment, but first a little news and some thank yous from 1001. More of you are subscribing to all four 1001 shows at your favorite hosts, be those Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Comcast.fm, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, or many others. 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales has the biggest percentage of new reviews, and they're all great, thank you. Maybe it was because I've been adding more stories by women, I'm not sure. But it has been on fire. And our recent spat of great interviews at 1001 Heroes has been well received. Our biggest increase has been Patreon supporters. Thank you for your support. And I see you've been enjoying the bonus shows we're sending you with the best of 1001, mostly ad-free, and prime cuts. If you're a true fan of the show and want more, please take a moment and check us out at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network and become an associate producer at 1001. Thanks. And now, back to our story. A little story background first. The Hills lived, as you already know, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Barney was employed by the United States Postal Service, while Betty was a social worker. Active in the local Unitarian congregation, the Hills were also members of the NAACP and community leaders. 
and Barney sat on a local board of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. They were an interracial couple at a time when it was particularly uncommon in the United States. Barney was an African-American, and Betty was white. This comes into focus really only for one reason. It makes the story more credible. When considering the courage it took to report all this in the first place, knowing the attitudes that existed toward mixed marriages back in the late 50s and early 60s, and with both of them knowing that a report of this magnitude involving a clear and close sighting, which left physical evidence which we'll describe later. Yes, there were skeptics and debunkers by the truckloads, as you might expect. And as with all our stories here at 1001, you'll get both sides of the story so you can make up your own minds. This one is the first alien abduction mystery we've ever done. We've been asked a few times to delve into the subject, and I thought this might be the right time. To me, alien abduction stories are tough to document and discuss because they're almost always based solely upon the testimony of one or two witnesses, and the stories seem like they've been borrowed from the creative minds of science fiction writers. But, as you start to dig deep, researching numerous accounts, and studying both sides, some close encounters begin to hold water, and the Betty and Barney Hill alien abduction is one of those. You'll get the chance to hear the story and get both sides, and I think it's good to always keep in mind the personalities involved and their motivation for wanting to report an incident like this. Put yourself in their shoes. If something happens to you, you feel responsible to tell someone about it because it's a highly unusual deal and it might represent a danger to others. You suspect that since this is an otherworldly occurrence, you will be subjected to a lot of scrutiny and doubt. You may lose your job, your friends, your spouse, but you go ahead and report it. All kinds of unwanted attention begins. You're subjected to psychological tests. People think you dreamed it up or that you had some kind of a shared mental lapse that caused a hallucination. Your family thinks you've gone off the deep end. Only later, after this whole thing has blown up way out of proportion, do you finally agree to offers for a book or a movie, figuring, okay, my life's been pretty much wrecked by all this. I might as well be reimbursed for all I've had to go through. And then the skeptics jump on you, saying you made this all up for money. So you can't win. I have read the synopsis of some of the psychological tests run by some highly accredited psychologists. Many of these tests, based on one-on-one sessions, with a wide swath of alien abduction victims. And the results indicate that these, almost to a man, are just regular people with no psychological problems, no axes to grind, and no desire to be thrust into the limelight. How many of these people who claim to have contact with aliens actually did experience something very strange that involved extraterrestrial beings? A true skeptic will answer easily. None. Zero. Zip. Nada. But they're forced to preface that with, because there is no life outside our own. If there is, show me. An open-minded person will look at all the facts and hold their opinion. Someone who has actually experienced it becomes the tin hat-wearing minority. There's a great story about Arizona Governor Symington, who actually witnessed the Phoenix UFO during his term. At first he said he had seen it, then soon after denied it, and even mocked those who had seen it, for political expediency. Then later, when he had nothing to lose, admitted to it again. Are most of us like that? I wonder. We don't want others to think we're nuts. Think of all the sightings and close encounters that were never reported. Maybe just the people with a strong inner core of right and wrong are the ones who step up. It's food for thought, and today's a buffet, I guarantee you. The rest of the story which you are about to hear will bring a lot of questions to your mind. For instance, why are alien abduction stories so prevalent in just the past 80 years? Civilization has been around for millenniums, and much of the past millennium has been recorded. Why no alien abduction accounts? Try this answer on for size. If you were to report to anyone that you had been abducted by aliens in the years prior to the 20th century, you would have been burned as a heretic, labeled as a witch and a devil worshiper, or put in a house for the insane. Even Jules Verne received a mountain of criticism for his far-reaching imagination in the late 19th century. If an alien abduction or encounter had happened to you in 1200 B.C. or 1200 A.D., it would make no difference. If you talked about it, you'd be ostracized from your community 
if not stoned to death first. So we can chalk up the last 150 years only as the age of possibilities, of science fiction, the age of exploration in science, the age of open minds, and the age of acceptance of things previously thought of as impossible, improbable, or irreligious. Another answer would be that most of all the alien encounters and reports of extraterrestrial crap came after we detonated an atomic bomb in 1945. A clear sign to the outer worlds that Earth had reached a nuclear milestone and could now be considered a threat or at least a subject of interest to outside civilizations. Many of the alien abduction cases quote their captors as telling them that Earth needs to end their nuclear arms race and stop messing with the atom. The most famous alien abduction cases, which begin to appear in 1956, follow here, and we'll do a few of these in the future at our Close Encounters series. 1956 was the first big one. That was Elizabeth Clarer in South Africa. 1957, Antonio Vilas Boas, Brazil. 1961, this one, Brady and Barney Hill, USA. 1973, Pascagoula abduction, USA. 1975, Travis Walton, USA. That was a big case. 1976, the Allagash abductions. I've read about those, and that's another serious one. 1978, Valentich disappearance, Australia. 1979, Robert Taylor incident, Scotland. 70s through the 80s, Whitley Stryber, USA. And then we jump to 1994, the Meng Zhaogou incident. That's all that I find listed here. My third answer would be that signs of ancient aliens commingling with civilization are, in many opinions, showing up pretty clearly in, in ancient cave drawings, and you can look that up easily and look at the drawings yourself. The idea of aliens coming here with, with ships of different shapes is not new. You'll see three stick-figure humans and one or two guys with super big heads and eyes standing next to or under a flying craft of some sort, showing up on cave walls along with other drawings that have been determined by experts to be 1,500 years old. And that does make you wonder. My fourth answer is the favorite of skeptics, that all of these reports of alien abductions are purely byproducts of the mind. Some are intentionally made up for attention and or profit, they say, and others are sincerely believed. But none really happened. Because there are no life forms outside of those we know on Earth. And there's no possibility of extraterrestrial travel. And they may be right. However, some, in fact the majority of these cases, were experienced by two people. Many symposiums have been set up to thoroughly analyze the alien abduction accounts and break them down for similarities in hopes to determine a pattern and thus to be able to write them off as different types of psychoses. Now we'll join Betty and Barney Hill as they pull into their driveway in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, right after this brief message from our sponsor. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers, as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001stories at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. Pulling into their driveway at about dawn, things started to get strange. Very strange. The Hills found that they had some odd sensations and impulses that they couldn't readily explain. Betty insisted their luggage be kept near the back door rather than in the main part of the house. Their watches were both stopped at 3 a.m., Barney noticed that the leather strap for his binoculars was torn, though he couldn't recall it tearing. And the toes of his best dress shoes were scraped, and he always kept them polished. 
As he went into the bathroom, Barney was compelled to examine his genitals in the bathroom, but he found nothing unusual. They both took long showers, feeling that they'd somehow been compromised, and they finally faced one another and agreed something had happened that was beyond their immediate memory. So they talked about what they'd seen, and each drew a picture of what they'd observed. They tried to reconstruct the chronology of events as they witnessed the UFO and drove home. But immediately after they heard the buzzing sounds, their memories, both of them admitted, became incomplete and fragmented. After sleeping for a few hours, Betty awoke and placed the shoes and clothing she had worn during the drive into her closet, observing that the dress was torn at the hem, zipper, and lining. Later, when she retrieved the items from her closet, she noticed a pinkish powder on her dress. She hung the dress on her clothesline, and the pink powder blew away. But the dress was irreparably damaged. She threw it away, but then changed her mind, retrieving the dress and hanging it in her closet. Barney's pant legs were covered with some kind of vegetative matter. They spent the morning trying to get their heads back in order, and decided to call in the sighting of a UFO, but nothing more. Because they couldn't be sure of what the nothing more was. Outside in the driveway, in the light of day, they could see that there were shiny, concentric circles on their car's trunk that had not been there the previous day. One of them had the idea to use their compass around the car to see if it had been affected in any way. They experimented with the compass, noting that when they moved it close to the new spots, the compass needle would whirl rapidly. But when they moved it a few inches away from the shiny spots, it dropped down. Barney also noticed that his leather binocular strap had been severed. It was a thick strap, not unlike a leather belt, but maybe a half inch wide. On September 22nd, Betty telephoned the 100th Bomb Wing SAC at Pease Air Force Base in neighboring Newington, New Hampshire, to report their UFO encounter. Though for fear of being labeled eccentric, she withheld some of the details. They gave the interviewing officer a basic report of the craft they'd observed. Barney withheld the fact that he had seen humanoid figures inside the craft because he didn't want to be labeled, as in his words, a crackpot. On September 22nd, Major Paul W. Henderson telephoned the Hills for a more detailed interview. Henderson's report, dated September 26th, determined that the Hills had probably misidentified the planet Jupiter. This was later changed to optical condition, inversion, and insufficient data. And that's Report 100-1-61, Air Intelligence Information Record. His report was forwarded to Project Blue Book, the U.S. Air Force's UFO research project. As additional information in the report, Major Henderson did add information concerning a radar observation at 2.14 a.m. that morning but there was nothing that hinted at any relationship between that event and the sighting by the hills. Although, when you think about it, why didn't he match them together? Within days of the encounter, Betty's curiosity, and maybe frustration at not getting to an answer, started mounting, and she borrowed a UFO book from a local library. It had been written by retired Marine Corps Major Donald E. Kehoe, who was also on the head of NICAP, a civilian UFO research group. On September 26th, Betty wrote to Kehoe. She related the full story, including the details about the humanoid figures that Barney had observed through binoculars. Betty wrote that she and Barney were considering hypnosis to help recall what had happened. Her letter was eventually passed on to Walter N. Webb, a Boston astronomer and NICAP member. She stated that Barney had seen something that had made him return to the car, acting very strangely almost hysterically, but that he had a mental block that prevented him from repeating all of what he'd seen. And could they help? Webb did meet with the Hills on October 21, 1961. In a six-hour interview, the Hills related all they could remember of the UFO encounter. Barney asserted that he'd developed a sort of mental block and that he suspected there were some portions of the event that he didn't wish to remember. He described in detail all that he could remember about the craft and the appearance of the somehow-not-human figures aboard the craft. Webb stated, quote, that they were telling the truth 
and the incident probably occurred exactly as reported, except for some minor uncertainties and technicalities that must be tolerated in any such observations where human judgment is involved. Those being exact time and length of visibility, apparent sizes of object and occupants, distance, height of object, etc. Ten days after the alleged UFO encounter, and a few days after the interview with Webb, Betty began having a series of vivid, frightening nightmares, continuing for five successive nights. Never in her memory had she recalled dreams in such detail and intensity. But they stopped abruptly after five nights and never came back again. They occupied her thoughts during the day. When she finally did mention them to Barney, he was sympathetic, but not too concerned, and the matter was dropped. Nor did he ask her what the dreams were in detail, or ask to see her notes. Betty did not mention them to Barney again. Because the dreams were so vivid, she had begun to take notes, and after a week or two went by, by November of 1961, she began writing down the details of her dreams from those notes. The five nights of dreams were all jumbled, not following any sequential order, but as she began to piece it all together, that's when it started to make sense. In one dream, she and Barney had encountered a roadblock and men who surrounded their car. She lost consciousness, but struggled to regain it. She then realized that she was being forced by two small men to walk in a forest in the nighttime, and of seeing Barney walking behind her, though when she called to him, he seemed to be in a trance or sleepwalking. The men stood about five feet to five feet four inches tall and wore matching blue uniforms with caps similar to those worn by military cadets. They appeared nearly human, with black hair, dark eyes, prominent noses, and bluish lips. Their skin was a grayish color. In the dreams, Betty, Barney, and the men walked up a ramp into a disc-shaped craft of metallic appearance. Once inside, Barney and Betty were separated. She protested and was told by a man she called the leader that if she and Barney were examined together, it would take much longer to conduct the exams. She and Barney were then taken to separate rooms. Betty then dreamt that a new man, similar to the others, entered to conduct her exam with the leader. Betty called this new man the examiner and said he had a pleasant, calm manner. Though the leader and the examiner spoke to her in English, the examiner's command of the language seemed imperfect and she had difficulty understanding him. The examiner told Betty that he would conduct a few tests to note the differences between humans and the craft's occupants. He seated her on a chair, and a bright light was shown upon her. The man cut off a lock of Betty's hair. He examined her eyes, ears, mouth, teeth, throat, and hands. He saved trimmings from her fingernails. After examining her legs and feet, the man used a dull knife similar to a letter opener to scrape some of her skin onto what resembled cellophane. He then tested her nervous system, and he thrust the needle into her navel, which caused Betty agonizing pain, whereupon the leader waved his hand in front of her eyes, and the pain vanished. The examiner left the room, and Betty engaged in conversation with the leader. She picked up a book with rows of strange symbols that the leader said she could take home with her. She also asked from where he came, and he pulled down an instructional map dotted with stars. In Betty's dream account, the men began escorting the hills from the ship when a disagreement broke out. The leader then informed Betty that she couldn't keep the book, stating that they had decided that the other men did not want her to even remember the encounter. Betty insisted that no matter what they did to her memory, she would one day recall the events. She and Barney were taken to their car, where the leader suggested that they wait to watch the craft's departure. In unison, all but one figure moved to what appeared to be a panel on the rear wall of the hallway that encircled the front portion of the craft. The one remaining figure continued to look at Barney and communicated a message telling him to stay where you are and keep looking. Barney had a recollection of observing the humanoid forms wearing glassy black uniforms and black caps. Red lights on what appeared to be bat-wing fins began to telescope out of the sides of the craft, and a long structure descended from the bottom of the craft. The silent craft approached to what Barney estimated was within 50 to 80 feet overhead 
and 300 feet away from him. On October 21, 1961, Barney reported to the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, that's NICAP, investigator Walter Webb, that the beings were somehow not human. On November 25, 1961, the Hills were again interviewed at length by NICAP members, this time C.D. Jackson and Robert E. Homan, in the company of Major James McDonald, a retired U.S. Air Force intelligence officer. The Hills claimed to recall almost nothing of the 35 miles of U.S. Route 3 between Indian Head and Ashland. Both claimed to recall an image of a fiery orb sitting on the ground. Betty and Barney reasoned that it must have been the moon, but Holman and Jackson informed them that the moon had set earlier that evening. The subject of hypnosis came up, and it was decided that it should be carried out in order to elicit previously irretrievable memories. Barney was apprehensive about that but thought it might help Betty to put to rest what Barney described as the nonsense about her dreams. By February of 62, the Hills were making frequent weekend drives to the White Mountains, hoping that revisiting the site might spark more memories. They were unsuccessful in trying to locate the site where they observed a fiery orb sitting in the road. However, they were able to eliminate several possible routes. They finally found what they claimed was the capture site on Labor Day weekend, in 1965, four years later. On March 12, 1962, Betty contacted Dr. Patrick Quirk, a psychiatrist from Georgetown, Massachusetts, to request an appointment. He suggested that they not try hypnosis at that time, but wait to see if more conscious memories would emerge. One year later, Barney developed a physically debilitating condition, today labeled as PTSD which forced him to take a three-month absence from his job at the post office. His medical treatment was augmented by psychotherapy, but his health did not improve. During this treatment, he mentioned his continued anxiety over his apparent amnesia regarding the incident, and he requested a referral to a competent psychiatrist who specialized in hypnotherapy. And this is as good a time as any to break in and say that for two years now, both Betty and Barney, but especially Barney, have been showing serious signs of problems connected with the incident, problems interfering with work and sanity in general. To anyone studying this case, it seems more than clear that this incident either happened or was seriously believed by both to have happened. That the two persons under hypnosis could relate their accounts so accurately and have them match each other, which they did, is beyond the realm of fraud. This is one reason why the Betty and Barney Hill abduction is taken so seriously by so many UFO researchers. On November 23, 1962, the Hills attended a meeting at the parsonage of their church where the invited guest speaker was Captain Ben H. Sweat of the United States Air Force, who had recently published a book of his poetry. After he read selections of his poetry, the pastor asked him to discuss his personal interest in hypnosis. After the meeting broke up, the Hills approached Captain Sweat privately and told him what they could remember of their strange encounter. He was particularly interested in the missing time of the Hills' account. The Hills asked Sweat if he would hypnotize them to recover their memories, but Sweat said he was not qualified to do that and cautioned them against going to an amateur hypnotist such as himself. On March 3, 1963, the Hills first publicly discussed the UFO encounter with a group at their church. This is a very interesting testimony given by Ben H. Sweat from Pease Air Force Base, New Hampshire. The subject, Betty and Barney Hill. On the 23rd of November, 1962, I read some of my poetry to a meeting at the rectory of the Unitarian Church in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I wasn't a member of that church, and I didn't know anyone there except the pastor. After my poetry reading, he said he had heard I was studying hypnosis, and they would like to hear about that. Those who came for the poetry left, and a few remained. I gave them a brief overview of hypnosis, including some of its uses and abuses. As I was about to leave, two people came up to me, introduced themselves as Betty and Barney Hill, and asked me if hypnosis could be used to recover lost periods of memory. I wonder why they asked that question, because I just mentioned it in my talk, but I said, yes, that's one of the classical uses of clinical hypnosis. They started telling me about something that happened to them as they were driving home from Canada on a September night in 1961. 
a light in the sky that seemed to follow them and then circle them, and being stopped on the road, and how they later realized they had a three-hour gap in their memories. As they told their story, Barney's face kept twitching spasmodically on one side. I didn't like the looks of that. They said some of their friends thought the light that followed them was a UFO, and asked me what I thought about UFOs. I said, there are a lot of reports by credible people. Then they asked me if I would hypnotize them to recover that gap in their memories. My first thought was, I don't want to wade into whatever is making his face twitch like that. I'm not a psychiatrist. Then I thought, UFOs. I'm an Air Force officer. Hypnosis? I have no credentials. So I said, no, I'm not qualified to do that. There was some discussion of UFOs. Three of the men obviously knew a lot about Air Force UFO reporting, more than I did, but I didn't know them. Betty and Barney walked outside with me, and we talked for rather a long time. I was skeptical of their story, but responded as best I could. They said several people had suggested they try hypnosis, and since I'd studied it and recommended it for recovering memories, they thought they'd go ahead with it. I said recovering those memories might reveal a lot of trauma and cautioned them against going to an amateur hypnotist such as myself or a half-baked hypnotherapist. I said they needed to find a reputable psychologist or psychiatrist who used hypnotherapy. On September 7, 1963, I gave a lecture on hypnosis to one of the adult study groups at the Unitarian Church in Portsmouth, followed by a question-and-answer period. No one mentioned UFOs. Several years later, I learned that Betty and Barney had told their story to this group before I arrived. They came to me afterward and said they had not tried hypnosis and still had the gap in their memories. Betty was still having dreams about the incident, but she wasn't as upset about them. Barney was going to a psychiatrist he liked and trusted. He had mentioned the UFO incident, and the psychiatrist wasn't astonished. But they were not working on that. I thought... This sounds right. He's in good hands. I strongly encourage them to ask Barney's psychiatrist about the use of hypnosis to recover the gap in their memories. I didn't hear anything about the Hills for the next nine months. It was only later that I learned that they had acted on my recommendation and Barney's psychiatrist had referred them to Dr. Benjamin Simon, a well-known psychiatrist in Boston. They first met with him December 14, 1963 and from January 4th to June 27th of 64, they drove to Boston one day a week to see him. Dr. Simon always hypnotized them separately and made sure that neither of them could hear what the other one said. Under hypnosis, they were able to remember the UFO incident, but it was so traumatic for them that he reactivated the amnesia at the end of each session. Starting about the 1st of April, the sessions were mostly based on playback of the audio tapes made under hypnosis. At the end of the last session, Dr. Simon gave them tapes and said they should listen to them at home because that might help to reduce the trauma. On June 27, 1964, as soon as they got home, Barney telephoned me at supper time. I was surprised to hear from him. He said they took my advice, had tape recordings made under hypnosis, and asked if they could bring the tapes to our house because they didn't want to listen to them alone. They wanted me to listen to the tapes and tell them what I thought. So the four of us, Betty and Barney and Wynne and I, sat on the floor in our living room that night and listened to the recording of Barney's first session under hypnosis. I was skeptical at first, but hearing what was on that tape, plus the fact they didn't want any publicity, convinced me they were telling the truth. For example, under hypnosis, Barney described seeing the UFO hovering close to the ground near the road. He got out of his car, walked toward it, and looked at it through binoculars. Something like a man was looking at him out of a window, right into his eyes, and started putting thoughts into his mind. He was saying, Come a little closer. Don't be scared. Uh, I used to talk to rabbits like that when I was hunting them. Just before the point on the tape where Barney started screaming, I've got to get out of here, and ran back to his car, the physical Barney jumped up and ran out to our kitchen and vomited in the sink. I thought that would be pretty hard to fake. 
pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When we finished listening to the tape, they asked me what I thought about it. I said I thought they were telling the truth. But that wasn't the problem. They said Dr. Simon also thought they deeply believed all this was true, but they wanted to know if it was real. Did this really happen to them, or was it somehow a dream or a fantasy created in their minds? I said I would need to hear all of the tapes before I would even try to answer that question. And they left the tapes with me. I listened to all the tapes. That took five nights. I made a lot of notes and went back to several tapes to make sure I had them right. Then I cross-checked comparable elements, distilled the whole thing in my mind, and decided what I believe. It was obvious that the Hills were deeply hypnotized. What they recalled under hypnosis consistently and persistently supported the hypothesis that their experience was real. But Dr. Simon didn't believe in UFOs, and he wasn't about to. He kept leading them toward any other explanation, and thus strongly suggested their experience wasn't real. That was why they were so ambivalent, and why their trauma had not been resolved. On the positive side, the fact that he did not believe them, did not suggest it to them, and tried to lead them away from it, greatly increased their credibility, and thus supported the hypothesis that what they remembered was real. I telephoned the Hills, went to their house, returned their audio tapes, told them I was convinced their experience was real, and I explained why I thought so. I said it was obvious that they were deeply hypnotized. I knew that from my own work with hypnosis. They were hypnotized separately and not allowed to hear each other's sessions, so there was no information feedback or cross-feed. Most important, Dr. Simon strongly suggested to them, under hypnosis, every other explanation he could think of, but they persisted in the same report. Their testimony under hypnosis cross-checked with things they had told me earlier, which they didn't understand at the time, and also cross-checked in detail. Each of them relived what he or she had experienced in 1961 and did not report anything that he or she could not have known. For example, in November 1962, they told me that when they got home in 61, they discovered that the tops of Barney's shoes were scuffed and scratched, and that bothered them because they didn't know how that could have happened. In 1964, under hypnosis, while Betty was reliving being taken from the car to the ship, she said, Oh, Barney, pick up your feet. Don't let them drag like that. Her wifely comment explained the scuff marks and also why Barney did not report being taken from the car to the ship. He was unconscious, at that point, with the tops of his shoes dragging on the ground as he was carried by his arms. Likewise, in November of 62, Barney told me that, a few days after they got home in 1961, he discovered that he had had a ring of warts around his genitals. That bothered him, because it indicated something had happened to him, and he didn't know what. In 1964, under hypnosis, he remembered the aliens put something like a cup around his genitals. When we talked about it in the summer of 64, I said maybe that was where the warts came from. He thanked me for making that connection. In 1964, under hypnosis, Barney reported that while they were being examined in separate rooms, the alien seemed to be interested or excited because his false teeth came out. Separately, Betty reported that an alien came into the room where she was being examined, opened her mouth, pulled on her teeth, and then left the room. My overall appraisal of the incident was simple. A spaceship was traveling from point A to point B. The spaceship crew wanted to do some research on hominid species, so they landed on a planet just off one of our trade routes, picked up a couple of samples, and did a quick physical examination. Some of them wanted to do more research while they had these samples, but the captain said they had to leave in order to get where they were going on time. Aircraft commanders think like that. They used post-hypnotic suggestion to block the samples' memories 
and put them back in their environment. It was no big deal from that point of view. It seemed to be an impromptu capture that could have happened to anyone on the road that night, and not aliens stalking them personally. My matter-of-fact appraisal of the incident seemed to help the Hills. They said they'd like to talk with me again after they had time to think about it, so I went to their house several times for what amounted to informal counseling sessions in which I tried to help them look at the entire incident more objectively. They said my point of view made sense, and they became more relaxed as we talked. Finally, I felt I'd said all I could say. They thanked me most graciously. We remained friends. Betty invited Wynn and me and Wynn's mother to their house for lunch, and we all had a good time. Then we went our separate ways, and I didn't hear from them for a year. On October 25, 1965, Barney telephoned me at 4 o'clock in the morning with panic in his voice. He said they were getting telephone calls from Europe about their UFO experience. I asked him, how did that happen? He said they told their story to the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, NICAP, supposedly in confidence. But someone told an unscrupulous reporter part of it. The reporter tried to interview them, but they refused and asked him not to publish anything about them. He said they had no right to refuse and published what he had in the Boston Herald Traveler. Many Europeans had already seen it in their morning newspapers because of the time zone difference. Barney said he and Betty were afraid they'd be scorned and ridiculed and lose their jobs. And what should they do? I said they should immediately tell their employers that the story was published without their permission and then find a lawyer who handled copyright cases to see what their rights actually were. As it turned out, their employers were understanding so they didn't lose their jobs and public reaction was generally positive, but as far as I know, they were never paid a dime for their story. They did find a lawyer, but he said there was nothing they could do about a newspaper story that wasn't libelous. Pressure to tell their story continued to build, and Barney finally agreed to be interviewed for television. On November 8, 1965, Barney was interviewed for television in a little Unitarian church in Dover, New Hampshire, on a cold, rainy night. The church as you can imagine, was packed. There was a waiting line around the building and down the street. Wynn and I went past the line to the basement of the church to get out of the rain. Soon the basement was full of people. While I was watching two men wire up a loudspeaker so we could hear the interview, even though we couldn't see it, a man in a tweed coat with several cameras hanging around his neck came through the crowd and said, My name is John Fuller. I understand you know Barney Hill. Could you introduce me to him? I'm writing a book about UFO sightings in this area, and I'd certainly like to consider his story, perhaps for another book. I asked him what his slant was, his approach to writing these stories. He said, I am not a sensationalist. I try to get all the information I can, and I present it as accurately as possible. If anything, I tend to underplay the sensational aspects. I liked what he said, so I led him upstairs, and introduced him to Barney. John G. Fuller wrote The Interrupted Journey, Dial Press, 1966, based on the audio tapes and extensive interviews with the Hills and Dr. Simon. Betty and Barney said he was a pleasure to work with. They appreciated his attitude. As he said, he wasn't a sensationalist, and he tried to present their story as accurately as possible. They seemed happy and relieved. They were no longer ambivalent, and their trauma seemed to be very much reduced, if not totally resolved. I and my family moved from New Hampshire to New Mexico in August of 1966. Not long before we left, I stopped by their house to say goodbye to the hills. Barney wasn't there, but I visited with Betty, and that was the last time I talked with her. She sent me a copy of The Interrupted Journey when it came out, and I thanked her for it but we didn't continue correspondence. Barney Hill died of a cerebral hemorrhage on February 25th, 1969, just eight years after the incident. In 1975, I saw the TV movie, The UFO Incident, starring James Earl Jones and Estelle Parsons. It is based on the interrupted journey, which is based on the audio tapes. Both the book and the movie represent the tapes accurately, and both underplay the sensational aspects. I only saw two small errors. 
Betty was a brighter person than she was portrayed in the movie, and she and Barney were not quite that lovey-dovey with each other. But I was surprised at the end of the movie. I knew that one of the UFO crew members showed Betty a star map and told her where they came from, and she drew the map while under hypnosis. But I didn't know that some astronomy expert with a computer had found a matching star system right where she drew it. The type of humanoid extraterrestrial beings that picked up the hills are called greys because of their skin color, or zetas, because zeta reticuli is the name of the star they pointed out to Betty Hill. Betty wrote a book called A Common Sense Approach to UFOs in 1995. A videotape interview with Betty was made in 2002. She was still doing well. But finally she died in her sleep October 17, 2004 at her home in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. She was 85. And now the results of those psychiatrist sessions, starting with Barney. And these were the sessions done with Dr. Simon, who began hypnotizing the Hills January 4th, 1964, when they were driving up to Boston on a weekly basis. Simon hypnotized Barney first. His recall of witnessing non-human figures was quite emotional, punctuated with expressions of fear, emotional outbursts, and incredulity. Barney said that due to his fear, he kept his eyes closed for much of the abduction and physical examination. Based on these early responses, Simon told Barney that he would not remember the hypnosis sessions until he was certain he could remember them without being further traumatized. Under hypnosis, Barney reported that the binocular strap had broken when he ran from the UFO back to his car. He recalled driving the car away from the UFO, but that afterwards he felt irresistibly compelled to pull off the road and drive into the woods. He eventually sighted six men standing in the dirt road. The car stalled, and three of the men approached the car. They told Barney not to fear them. He was still anxious, however, and he reported that the leader told Barney to close his eyes. While hypnotized, Barney said, I felt like the eyes had pushed into my eyes. Barney described the beings as generally similar to Betty's hypnotic recollection, not her dream recollection, but her hypnosis recollection. The beings often stared into his eyes, said Barney, with a terrifying, mesmerizing effect. Under hypnosis, Barney said things like, Oh, those eyes, they're there in my brain. And, I was told to close my eyes because I saw two eyes coming close to mine and I felt like the eyes had pushed into my eyes. And from his second session, All I see are these eyes. I'm not even afraid that they're not connected to a body. They're just there. They're just up close to me, pressing against my eyes. Barney related that he and Betty were taken into the disc-shaped craft where they were separated. He was escorted to a room by three of the men and told to lie on a small rectangular exam table. Unlike Betty, his narrative of the exam was less detailed, and we've explained some of it already. Barney said that he heard voices around him speaking in a mumbling language he did not understand, yet he also understood them in English. Betty had also mentioned this detail. The few times they communicated with him, Barney said it seemed to be thought transference. At that time, he was unfamiliar with the word telepathy. Both Betty and Barney stated they hadn't observed the beans' mouths moving when they communicated in English with them. He recalled being escorted from the ship and taken to his car. In a daze, he watched the ship leave. Barney remembered a light appearing on the road when he said, Oh, no, not again. He recalled Betty's speculation that the light might have been the moon though the moon had set several hours earlier. He also stated that he attempted to produce the code-like buzzing sounds which seemed to strike the car's trunk a second time by driving from side to side and stopping and starting the vehicle, but that attempt was unsuccessful. Betty's account was similar to the events of her five dreams about the UFO abduction, but there were also notable differences, mainly pertaining to her capture and release. The technology on the craft was different. The short man had a significantly different physical appearance from that of her dreams. The sequential order of the abduction event was also different from Betty's dream account. She exhibited considerable emotional distress during her capture and examination. Simon had to end one session early because tears were flowing down her cheeks and she appeared distressed. Simon gave Betty the post-hypnotic suggestion that she could sketch a copy of the star map 
that she later described as a three-dimensional projection similar to a hologram. Eventually, she did what Simon suggested. Although she said the map had many stars, she drew only those that stood out in her memory. Her map consisted of twelve prominent stars connected by lines and three lesser ones that formed a distinctive triangle. She said she was told the stars connected by solid lines formed trade routes, whereas dashed lines were to less-traveled stars. After the hypnosis sessions, the Hills went back to their regular lives. They were now willing to discuss the alleged UFO encounter with friends, family, and an occasional UFO researcher, but they apparently made no effort to seek publicity. Then that front-page story in the Boston Traveler hit October 25, 1965, titled UFO Chiller, Did They Seize Couple? And that was reporter John H. Luttrell of The Traveler, and it had allegedly been given an audio tape recording of the lecture that the Hills had made in Quincy Center in late 63. Luttrell had learned that the Hills had undergone hypnosis with Dr. Simon. He also obtained notes from confidential interviews the Hills had given to UFO investigators. On October 26th, UPI picked up Luttrell's story, and the Hills earned international attention, unwanted. As we said before, in 1966, John Fuller secured the cooperation of the Hills and Simon and wrote the book The Interrupted Journey. The 1966 publication of Interrupted Journey details much of the Hills' claims. Excerpts of the book were published in Look magazine, and Interrupted Journey went on to sell many copies and greatly publicized the Hills' account. Betty's niece, Kathleen Martin, who maintains an excellent blog today, explored Fuller's themes along with scientist Stanton Friedman in her book Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. You might remember Stanton Friedman from an interview we did with him just last year called Are UFOs Real? Quite fascinating if you haven't heard that one. Friedman was a nuclear physicist who had worked on top-secret programs for the U.S. government and has no doubt that UFOs exist. Marden knew Betty well and had spoken with her at great lengths about the encounter. She also examined all of the historical records and scientific reports pertaining to the case and transcribed the Hill's hypnosis sessions with Benjamin Simon for a detailed comparative analysis. As you might expect, the Betty and Barney Hill close encounter has been attacked by skeptics since the day it was made public. Psychiatrists later suggested that the supposed abduction was a hallucination brought on by the stress of being an interracial couple in the early 1960s in the U.S. Betty discounted this suggestion, noting her relationship with Barney was happy and their interracial marriage caused no notable problems with their friends or family. As noted in the interrupted journey, Simon thought that the Hill's marital status had nothing to do with the UFO encounter. The couple was portrayed by James Earl Jones and Estelle Parsons in the 1975 TV film adapted by S. Lee Pogostin, The UFO Incident, as we mentioned previously, and by Basil Wallace and Lee Garlington in the 1996 television series Dark Skies. As usual, we'll leave it up to you to decide if the Barney and Betty Hill close encounter took place as they said it did through their hypnosis sessions. It remains one of the most perplexing unsolved mysteries of ufology today. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Reviews, reviews, reviews. Listeners, we really need reviews for 1001 Heroes, so please take a minute and send us some kind words. And thank you, Patreon supporters, for your great turnout. Your support will help us reach 2001 episodes, and it's greatly appreciated. I used to be hesitant to ask for your support, but I got over it. We need you now more than ever. If you enjoy all the shows we bring, it's nice to show it. It's nice to thank us for less than a cup of blended coffee once a month. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. We'll see you next week.